looks can be deceiving. Don't judge a book by its cover. These are phrases we, we toss around. Why do they exist? Well, precisely because we often do judge a book by its cover. We can be enchanted and even deceived by external appearances at times. You see, we're often not the best at evaluating people and events and ideas. You know, sure, we, we like to think of ourselves as competent. Our, our experiences and our training, our intuitions and our intelligence, uh, of course, those things help us make wise choices, but we all would acknowledge that we're prone to make mistakes. We're prone to value the wrong things too highly, like buying stock in the crypto market a year ago, or we value the right things too cheaply, humility and love and service. In this life, what is wise and what is foolish, well, it can be hard to tell. And so it is that God reveals to us the truth about the, the final judgment, the judgment day, as a kind of scale and barometer and litmus test. Uh, we're meant to evaluate our actions and our decisions, their supposed gains and the apparent losses, in light of that great day. That's what we'll be considering this morning in our last sermon in the book of Malachi. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to chapter 3. We'll go from chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to the end. Written around 460 BC, the Lord raised up Malachi to preach to a disillusioned and disappointed nation. You see, the Lord had made incredible promises of blessing to Abraham in 2000 BC. Many of these blessings began to come miraculously true around 1400 BC when the Lord led his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, at Mount Sinai, God had promised to be their God and they would be his people if only they would obey him. The problem is that the next 900 years is basically a long list of Israel's sins. Uh, Israel just refused to repent. And they refused to walk in God's ways. And so in 586 BC, the Lord raised up the Babylonians to conquer the nation of Israel and to carry them off into slavery. Yet the Lord, in his mercy, relented. He caused a remnant to return to Jerusalem around 537 BC, about 50 years of captivity. Uh, he graciously restored them and promised to be with them again. But between 537 and 460, when Malachi was preaching, over those few decades, as much as Israel was glad to be back in the promised land, things looked bleak. Their crops were failing. The Davidic king, their supposed savior, was nowhere to be seen. Their enemies oppressed them. Their leaders were corrupt. And God himself seemed to be absent. You know, had God forgotten his promises? Had God changed? Is obedience even worth it? These are the questions that Malachi's day were asking. And so the Lord raised up Malachi to preach. Chapter 1 began with an affirmation of God's love for his people. And then the past two chapters, we've seen how Israel doubted God's love. Uh, as evidenced by their half-hearted worship and their corrupt priests. They, they didn't fear God, leading to social injustice and divorce. And the nation failing to tithe God's provision for them. So we arrive at our passage this morning. 
Uh, like I said, we'll be in chapter 3, verse 13, and we'll go to the end of the book. Lord willing, next week, Sam Taylor will be preaching a one-off sermon. Uh, brother, so thank you for your labors and preparing for that. And then, Lord willing, we're going to jump into the book of Colossians. So uh, we have scripture journals that we're going to pass out next week. You can look forward to those. Uh, but for today, as we finish Malachi, we'll have two sections. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because the day of the Lord has come and will come again, we should serve God gladly. Because the day of the Lord has come and will come again, we should serve God gladly. So look with, look with me at Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, be, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. Well, our, our first point begins in chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, entitled, Serving the Lord. You see, the Lord begins in verse 13 by indicting Israel's speech. God says, your words have been hard against me. While we might think that God is only concerned about, you know, the, the really big sins, like idolatry and murder and oppression, here we see that God calls Israel to account for their grumbling words. And we get the content of their complaining there in verses 14 and 15. They think it is vain to serve God. There's no profit in our keeping his charge. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You know, Israel's complaint most basically is that serving God and sacrificing for him is pointless. There's no profit or benefit from serving God. We put in all this time, all this effort, all this money to serve God, and what do we get out of it? 
Now, the reason for this attitude is that the evildoers in Malachi's day were prospering. Right? So I can, you kind of like do a comparison. Okay, those serving God are not prospering. The evildoers are doing really well. Their retirement accounts are full. Their houses are big. Their flocks are expanding. The implication, I think, is that Israel, you know, the thought process is, well, it's vain to serve God. There's no profit in that. But boy, there's a lot of profit in serving myself. You know, this goat would really serve my family. There would be real, tangible gain if I didn't sacrifice it to the Lord. Think about how much profit they would get a one-seventh increase if they worked their lands on the Sabbath day. That's a big deal. I don't know the percentage, but that's a big deal. The proof is in the pudding, right? Just look at the wicked. I know appearances can be deceiving, but they just seem to be prospering. Shouldn't we go do that? Brothers and sisters, do you ever feel this way? I do. When I look around at the prosperity of the wicked, I am tempted to envy them. I am tempted to think that maybe it would be better if I served myself, cut some corners, looked out for me. But before we get to to God's response to faithless Israel, I think it's really important that we note that God's problem with Israel is not that they are looking for a reward. Do you see that? God is not saying, man, you guys are so selfish, always thinking about what do I get? That's not his indictment. His indictment is that they think there is no reward. You see, we don't serve God because he needs us, right? Acts 17, 25 states, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we don't serve God to to provide for something that he lacks and that he needs. But neither does God call us to serve him or do anything that is ultimately harmful or detrimental to us. Notice that word, ultimately. So in summoning us to worship him and serve him, God, it's really important, God is not laying a burden on us. When God commands us to serve him, he's not commanding us to do something that is a burden. He is commanding something that will be a blessing. Okay, so Jesus doesn't motivate us in the Christian life by saying, this will be terrible, but I am worth it, so suck it up and just get used to it. That's not what he says. No, he says, take up your cross, die to yourself, die daily. This will be hard. but it will be worth it because I am worthy and in the losing of your life, you will save it. Jesus wants you to save your life and he says the way to do that is by losing, is by serving God. If you and I die daily, we will find our lives in serving the Lord. So beloved, if you would persevere in serving the Lord in this church, in your life, for the rest of your life, you, you've, we've got to understand that God doesn't need us, okay? Because that just creates all kinds of weird thing where we think, you know, we are doing God a favor by serving him, 
right? So God doesn't need us, but our serving is the pathway for our receiving. Christianity is not about what we do for God. It is about what God does for us in the gospel, in the person of his son. We serve God because we delight in his glory and praise and because in that we find our deepest joy. So our joy and his glory are not two separate goals. They're one. But you say, Scott, what if I I don't see any fruit? Uh, There are no good results. It's still pointless. That's what verses 16 to 18 address. You know, verse 15 ended with um, Malachi's preaching God's word. And then verse 16 is a historical account telling us the results of Malachi's ministry and preaching. Uh, You know, it reads, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We've encountered this phrase multiple times in Malachi. We should note that when God calls us to fear him, he's not calling us to be afraid of him. So you remember back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, they run away from God and they say, I was afraid. Or in Exodus 20, God comes down to the mountain to give the Ten Commandments. Moses goes to the people and says, do not be afraid, for God has come to test you that you might fear him. So there's a type of being afraid of God that we're not supposed to have, but there is a right reverence and awe and wonder and amazement that we should have. That's why in our call to worship this morning, Zechariah was really, really happy that we can now serve the Lord without fear. Because on one hand, we're, we're supposed to fear God, but on the other hand, it's not with a fear and being afraid of God. You see, to fear God is to have an awe-filled, trembling, an overwhelmed response of love and admiration for all that God is. To fear God is to act as though he's the most significant reality in the universe, because he is. To fear God is to act as though he's the most significant reality in this circumstance, because he is. Uh, To fear God is to live as though we are ever before him, because we are. It's a kind of wholehearted apprehension of God's gravitas. Uh, It's to know his love and his grace, the glory and goodness, the patience and majesty, the love and eternity. We were to know God's all. This isn't a gloomy or morose thing. Uh, Isaiah 11 describes the coming Messiah as the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So if the Messiah, Jesus, who had no sin and no fear of judgment, if he can delight in God, if he can fear God, rather delight to fear God, well, then so can we. And so can we. Uh, 17th century pastor William Ames commented, the principal cause of our fear is not any evil which we are in danger of, but the excellent perfections of God. All right, so this is what the Lord was calling for his people And notice the encouraging results. I mean, in a a book that's kind of bleak, I'll be honest, bleaker than when I said, hey, let's study Malachi. I'm like, man, this thing's hard. Uh, In a book that's kind of bleak, verse 16 is encouraging. 
Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and God took notice. There seems to be a revival of true religion. And yet it wasn't just Malachi preached, and then, you know, boom, the whole nation turned to God. No. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. It wasn't just Malachi's preaching. It was the saints speaking to one another. This is so crucial that we see that that if this morning you are a Christian, God has given you a job to do. If you're a Christian, God has given you a job. He has called you to help other Christians to heaven. He has called you to use your words and your speaking to do spiritual good to those around you. Because fearing God and following Christ is always a personal decision, right? Nobody can make it for you. So kids, we're super glad you're here. We hope that every single one of you will trust in Christ and you will decide yourselves to follow the Lord Jesus. Your parents can't make that decision for you. We want you to make that decision. So so fearing God, following Christ, it's a personal decision, but it's never a private one. It's never something that stays tucked away in a corner. Now, fearing God, serving the Lord, knowing Christ is a public declaration. It's a public reality. And so it is that we follow Christ with one another because we need one another, right? We need encouragement when we're discouraged. We need comfort when we're grieving. We need rebuke when we're backsliding. We need to rejoice together when the Lord showers his grace. We need the church. Hebrews, 13, uh, Hebrews 3.13 states, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, there is this menace, this danger out there. And, and it's the deceitfulness of sin. And, it, and if sin does deceive you, it will harden your heart. It will lead you to hell. And so what is God's divinely approved antidote to prevent that from happening? It's one another. It's exhorting one another. It's the saints speaking to one another to keep following Christ, keep pursuing the Lord. Or consider the responsibility that God gives to every Christian in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, you who fear the Lord, you have a responsibility towards your other brothers and sisters. So God intends to do a lot of good through the preaching of his word, God also intends to do a lot of good through the dinner conversations that you have, through getting together with people to read the Bible and read a good book together about Christ and the gospel. This is kind of the essence of what we call church membership here at Trinity. Uh, Basically, church membership is a commitment to do spiritual good to one another. Uh, This is why we think if you're a Christian, it's so important that you be a part of, a committed part of, a local church. Uh, We're to take ownership and responsibility 
for the particular body that we're a part of. Just as the Israelites spoke to one another in Malachi's day, uh, leading the nation to revive in true religion, we're called to have this same kind of ministry to one another. So I think in, in 21st century America, we, can, we mainly think that love produces commitment. And that's true, right? We love each other and therefore we commit. But there's also a sense in which commitment produces love, right? So if we just kind of say, I'm not gonna commit until, I, until my love reaches a certain point, okay, I, I get that. But there's also a point where we, we commit to people and then the love flows out of that. So if you're a Christian and you've been around Trinity long enough for you to say, yes, I think I'd like to make this my spiritual home, uh, let me encourage you to talk to me about doing a membership class, membership interview. This, the class is basically a time for you to learn about the structure and emphases and doctrines of Trinity. The interview is simply a time for me to get to know you, hear your testimony, uh, hear any questions you might have. Uh, attending the class or the interview obviously doesn't require you to be a member. But, but whether it is this local church or another gospel preaching congregation, uh, let me encourage all of us to obey Christ's command to do spiritual good to one another in a committed way. That, that's what these brothers and sisters, these saints were doing in Malachi 3.16. And, and then we notice that this book of remembrance, as a result, was written before the Lord. In short, these Israelites who feared the Lord, their names and their good deeds would not be forgotten. God would remember them. He's written it down. And then God elaborates on, in verses 17 and 18 about the effects of this book. We read, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Friends, notice the intimacy and the relational terms here. Uh, it's really familial language that God uses. First, he says, they shall be mine. You know, it's one thing for us to say, yeah, I'm with God. It's an entirely different thing for God to say, yeah, I'm with Ian. I'm with Mel. I'm with Ashley. Right? Because So I'm all on board with the Celtics. Banner 18, let's go. But if you ask Jason Tatum, the star of the Celtics, hey, what do you think of Scott Cope? He's going to have no idea what you're talking about. So I can say, yeah, I'm with the Celtics. The Celtics aren't really with Scott. But if you said, hey, Jason Tatum, what do you think of that Scott guy? And he said, oh, Scott? He's my guy? Oh, yeah, he's with me. He's mine. Beloved, this is the privilege we have as Christians, that God owns us as his own people. Not because we're impressive, but because he is, because he's gracious, because of his love. Second, God refers to this remnant, to those who feared God's name as my treasured possession. Now, this is huge. In Exodus 20, um, Israel got their founding documents for the nation. So America has the Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution. Israel had Exodus 20. Okay, that was the, the Ten Commandments. And like all good official documents, there is a preamble in Exodus 19 before you get the Ten Commandments. And in that preamble, 
God says, you, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, same word, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God basically says, I own the whole earth. I could have whoever I want, whatever I want, whenever I want. And I have decided that you are going to be my treasured possession. If you'll obey, that is. It's not as if their obedience secured their salvation. No, God said, I've already saved you from Egypt. But if they'll obey, you, you will be my object of supreme delight and blessing. That's what God called Israel to in Exodus 20. But we've been considering the last couple of weeks, right, how Israel just failed miserably. They didn't obey God's word. They lived in sin. And so what's so important is that here in Malachi 3, we learn that God's special possession is no longer going to be ethnic Israel. It is no longer going to be on the basis of biological descent. Rather, those who are God's people are those who fear his name. Those who fear God, they will be God's treasure possession. And in the New Testament, we get clarity about who those people are. In 1 Peter 2, Peter's addressing the church, and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Beloved, now that we are in the new covenant era, it's Jews and Gentiles, anyone who would fear the Lord, that are God's people. To the church, God says, you who follow Christ and have been united to him, you are my treasured possession. Third, God says that I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. You remember they had initially asked, is it really worth it to serve God? And this is God's answer. Yes, it is. Because if you do serve me, if you do fear me, you will be spared. Now, it's really important that we notice that it's a son who serves who is spared. So the son's serving does not make the son a son. He was already a son before the serving. The son is a son. And so it is with us. We don't in any way serve to become sons and daughters of the Lord. Our serving could never earn our acceptance with God. No, as Christians, why do we serve God? Because we've already been saved. Because we've already been adopted into God's family. And now he's our father. And he's a great father. And so in our better moments, we want to please him. We want to love him and serve him because of all that he is. Sadly, all of us have sinfully served ourselves. Uh, all of us are born serving not God and neighbor in perfect love. We serve our own interests, our own agendas. And it's because of that, because of our harsh words and our grumbling, our arrogance, our self-serving, that we deserve punishment on judgment day. We have been disobedient, rebellious children. And yet, why does God spare us? Who does he spare? 
But he spares all those who will trust in his true son, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, who was the only truly obedient son, who never served himself, always served God, always served his neighbor. On the cross, Jesus was not spared. The son who served should show no compassion. On the cross, Jesus received no mercy so that we could receive bountiful mercy. So we could receive the overflow of God's love and compassion. This is the the fundamental message of Christianity, the, the gospel, the good news. Not that if you serve God enough and fear God enough, you, by your good deeds, can earn your way to heaven. But that God invites all people into his family not on the basis of our service, but on Christ's service. Jesus says in Mark 10, for even the son of man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, if you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, this is the first step. So you don't, don't, don't worry about like, okay, how do I serve God? No, first you need to be served by God. Served in the, death of Christ on the cross. God will do all this, and the result is verse 18. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who doesn't serve him. In short, the Lord's saying, look, there is a day coming when you will see that serving me is not in vain you will see the distinction. And thus the challenge for Israel back then, before that final judgment day, well, it's the same challenge we face, isn't it? It's to live in light of that day and have our priorities shaped by that day and have our attitudes shaped by that day. When we envy, when I envy the prosperity of the wicked, we've forgotten the end of the drama. When we grow weary and frustrated and discouraged that our acts of service don't receive the applause and the plaudits that we wish they did, we've forgotten the end of the story. Hebrews 6.10 states, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Brothers and sisters, God sees. God knows the sacrifices that you make to serve the saints. And God has a book of remembrance. He will not forget your humble service. Whether praying or serving or teaching or evangelizing or discipling or volunteering or setting up or tearing down, giving, stepping out of your comfort zone, meeting someone new for the sake of Christ, God delights in such humble acts of service. Like an affectionate father, he sees the imperfect but sincere efforts of his children. He doesn't need our help, but like a good father, he delights in our cheerful service. So let's turn to our second point. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, entitled, The Day of the Lord. These verses are really just an unpacking of what God had said in verse 17. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. What will that day entail? Well, verse one details the fate of the wicked. For behold, the day is coming, 
burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You remember how our passage began commenting how the arrogant are called blessed and the evildoers prosper. That's why Israel thought serving God was pointless. Yet here on the last day, we see the fortunes reversed. Friends, the truth is that sin is like a really bad credit card. Credit cards can fool you into thinking you can afford stuff that you actually can't, right? Promises all this good stuff up front and hides the cost. You know, check out this purse or this watch, this car, this vacation. Don't worry about paying up. Just, just enjoy it now. Just live for now. I'm not like totally against credit cards. Don't go crazy. But the bill is coming. And friends, that's what sin is like. Sin tempts us, saying, look how happy and satisfied you'll be if you just indulge. It'll make your life better, easier, more pleasurable. Don't, don't worry about paying. Don't, okay, that's, just live for now. Don't, don't worry about that. That's far away. And yet, don't let, brothers and sisters, the delay of judgment lead you to believe in the impossibility of God's judgment. That day will come when every bill is called to account. The the language of verse 1 is fearsome, right? Burning like an oven, stubble, ablaze, and totally consumed. And yet the truths about judgment aren't just like, Old Testament things, right? In Mark 9, Jesus referred to those who go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Peter states in 2 Peter 3, by the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Paul states in 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. For the Christian, this should sober us. This should warn us, lest we fall away and that fate await us. But it also comforts us, right? Knowing that injustice and wrongdoing and evil and sin and unrighteousness will one day finally be overthrown. You know, we're kind of in this like catch-22. Do we want a God who is a God of justice or a God of mercy? Well, on the one hand, when we see evil in this world, we're like, man, I want a God of justice. Yeah, but then we, you and I are in a lot of trouble because we're not as innocent as we like to think. And so then we think, okay, I, really, I want a God of mercy. Yeah, but then you like look out in the world and you, there are evil people who get away with really evil things. What, which is it? Well, in Christ, in the gospel, Christianity is that God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Every sin will be paid for, either in the cross of Christ for those who have trusted in him, or in eternity in hell for those who do not. And so mercy is extended and open and invited for all, but you must receive that gift. Malachi 4.1 reminds God's people of the fate that awaits the wicked. Let me just say super briefly, it says in my notes, um, the other day, Kate and I, we were at the kids' museum we ran into a woman 
young lady who had um, a school of theology uh, lanyard on. And I said, oh, are you a theology student? Like, I'm a pastor. I love theology. She says, yeah. And uh, it's a theologically liberal school, which means they don't believe every word of the Bible. I said, oh, like, how's it going? What class are you taking? She goes, oh, I'm taking, uh, you know, personal care, New Testament, and evangelism. And I was just, like, really surprised that they had an evangelism class. And so I just said, like, oh, what, what do you think about that evangelism class? And she goes, oh, I don't believe in evangelism. Friends, if you don't believe in judgment, yeah, I don't evangelize. There's no reason. But friends, we who think the Bible is true, that God has promised that there is a day of judgment, that's why we pray. That's why we talk on the plane when we just want to put in our headphones. That's why we go out to Burlington on Saturday mornings. We think this day really is coming. We also come, though, to verse 2. And, and again, this heightens it. It's the, the despair of the wicked, but the joy of the righteous, of those who've been saved. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You know, if the wicked should dread judgment day, how should the saints feel about it? We should look forward to it. We should long for that happy, joyful day. For, for those who love God and fear him, nothing will please us more than to see the glory of Christ and his name vindicated. You know, for those of us who hate evildoing and wrongdoing, nothing will be more satisfying than to see the sun of righteousness rise. It's really interesting. The day comes leading to burning and stubble and a blaze for the wicked. That same sunrise comes, that sun of righteousness, and it leads to rejoicing to those who, who are righteous by faith. That, that one event, a blaze for some, mercy and leaping out of the stalls for others, right? I don't know, maybe I should talk to Abby. What does it look like for calves to leap out of the stalls? I'll be honest, I don't know. But the point is that we will be fully and finally set free from the bondage of sin and Satan and death. Because of the work of Christ, we will walk out of our graves. Well, we'll really rise out of them. To newness of life, eternal life, and the new heavens and new earth. God will heal all things as everything sad becomes untrue. Everything will be perfect as God wipes every tear from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, everything that we have longed and hoped for, everything that you have anticipated, will finally come true on that day. That, that's why the New Testament is chock full of verbs that refer to the day of Christ, like eagerly awaiting, eagerly anticipating, hoping, and longing, because it will be the best thing to have ever happened to this universe and to our lives. All our hopes and dreams purified by God's love, all of them come true when we see God and know him forever. So Christian, when you are discouraged, when you lose your job, or you are overwhelmed by the stresses and pressures of life, and when the doctor comes back with a prognosis and a diagnosis that is daunting, remember Christ's return. I think about that day when evil and pain and suffering will be no more. 
all our bodies and souls will be healed from sin. Long for that day. Sing about that day in your homes and with friends. Pray about it. That's why we're, we're doing that today. And so our passage concludes with two reminders. First in verse four, quicker of the two. Remember the law of my servant Moses. In short, how should I serve the Lord in the here and now? Well, one of God's best servants wrote a big book on that. So Malachi was saying, go back to God's word. And in anticipation of that day, live, live according to God's word. And so it is today. As we await for Christ's return and final judgment, we seek to obey God's word. And then second, in verses five and six, you know, the Old Testament comes to kind of an abrupt end. Look there. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Back in chapter three, the Lord had said that he would send his messenger to prepare his way and his coming. And here we see that the messenger is identified as taking on an Elijah-like role. Uh, his role will be to prepare fathers and children alike for when God descends to earth, lest humanity be unprepared and thus headed for destruction. So who is this Elijah? Well, if you turn in your Bibles like two pages, we learn that it is in fact John the Baptist who fulfills the role of Elijah. So in Matthew 17, Jesus states, Elijah does come first and he will restore all things, but I tell you that, he al that Elijah already has come and they did not recognize him. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. This is what we read about in Luke 1 in our call to worship this morning. Uh, John the Baptist was raised up by God to prepare the way for Emmanuel, Christ, Jesus, God with us. He came before the day of Christ's advent to give the knowledge of salvation to God's people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You see, the Old Testament, the, the prophet spoke about that one and final day of the Lord filled with salvation and judgment. The Old Testament prophets were, were, were kind of like looking at a mountain range from a distance and they're seeing all these events that is the day of the Lord, day, events, or, yeah, events of salvation and judgment, and they think, oh, yeah, this is the day of the Lord. But when we come to the New Testament, we come to see that the day of the Lord actually has two iterations. The day of the Lord began already with Christ's first advent to earth. Uh, the day of the Lord began when Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Where was the judgment? When Christ came, the first time 2,000 years ago, the only judgment that was meted out was the judgment meted out on the cross. The day of the Lord did come with salvation and judgment. Salvation for us, judgment for Christ. And, and so it is, Jesus says in John 12, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's referring to his first coming. And now we await his second coming. Now we await the day when Christ will return in final judgment, when wickedness will be finally and fully overcome. So the very next verse, John 12, 48, Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I've spoken will judge him 
on the last day. You see, the day of judgment is yet to come. Right now, we live in what the New Testament calls the last days between his first and second comings. We live in the already and not yet. Already the Lord has come, but our salvation and all that it will accomplish is not yet fully apparent. We await Christ's return and long for the consummation of all things when death will be swallowed up in victory. And so, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, the day of the Lord has already come in salvation. What a glorious salvation it is. And soon the day of the Lord will come yet again in judgment. And what a terrible judgment it will be. For all those who have not trusted in Christ, the need is urgent to turn to him. For those who have trusted in Christ, we have work to do, serving the Lord. As Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 states, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, who are you stirring up to love and good deeds in light of that final day? Who is stirring you up to love and good deeds in light of that final day? May God give us grace that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to live in light of that day. We pray that our, our lives wouldn't make sense to a watching world. We pray that we would serve you so wholeheartedly that our lives would not make sense apart from eternity. Help us to serve you with zeal and humility and joy. And may we long for the day when Christ will return. We pray this in his name. Amen.